Again, we're looking at this uh, scripture in Titus chapter one and verse number five, where Paul says, in short, he says, for this reason, I left you in Crete that you might set in order the things that are lacking. He says, and appoint elders in every city as I have commanded you. I believe that in perpetual leadership that God never wants to leave a household, a family, a ministry, a church, a home fellowship or a city without leadership. In our previous session, Pastor John just really explored what it happens to a nation when we have inappropriate leadership. Pastor John, I wrote one of the notes that I'm going to develop while you are talking. And it says, if good leadership is a blessing, then bad leadership must be punishment. Because it seemed like when Israel didn't do right, when God wanted to get their attention and punish them, he gave them bad leadership. When they went into Babylon, it was bad leadership. When they went and were under Persian captivity, it was bad leadership. When Israel will go astray under all of those various judges and or kings in Israel and in Judah, they will have this little statement. And this king did not walk according to his father, David, bad leadership. And so if good leadership is a blessing, bad leadership definitely is a curse. And so we want to explore this whole thing of perpetual leadership that God does not want to lead. We already said that when we set in order that leaders need to be solution oriented, that we need to have the capacity to fix some things and set some things in order. Secondly, we said for us to set things in order, we must have oversight authority insight, be able to look into a thing and do a proper assessment. And then finally foresight, look down the road and see something beyond what we are looking at right now. Thirdly, we said that leadership must be as in Paul's uh, definition. He says ordain elders must be mature. And he said mature leadership, which is experienced leadership, should be to reproduce other leaders. You see, reproduction is part of our call. And we read as we close uh, Psalm 90, 71, 16, where we see a king saying, Lord, when I'm old and gray headed, don't forsake me. And don't leave me until I've shown this generation your strength and everyone to come your power. Isn't it interesting that Moses had a Joshua to pour everything into? Isn't it interesting that Elijah had Elisha to pour everything into? I find it fascinating that Jesus had the 12 to pour his life into. And then Paul comes along and he has Titus and Timothy to pour his life into. You see, the remainder of the verses that we did that we looked at this morning, it says, if a man is blameless and a husband and wife and his children are there and they're faithful inside their household, he said, then that man is worthy of leadership. And I really believe that when we look at leaders before we pour ourselves inside of them and put them in leadership, especially in the church, that we ought to make sure that their family life is right. How many people's leadership ability has been questioned because their family life is not right? Here he says in uh, verse number seven that we should be stewards of God, not self-willed. He gives all these knots, not quick tempered, not given the wine. He says not uh, violent and uh, not uh, greedy for for uh, for money. I think when he gives the office of the deacon later on, he's going to say that the deacons can't be given to much wine elder. But bishops overseas, he says, not given to wine. In other words, drunkenness should be put out of our lives. We should not be intoxicated by the things of this world. 
One thing to drink is another thing to be a drunk. Okay, I got one. You know, okay. <laughs> and friends, <laughs> that, that, that should be that should be it. Because when you and I get intoxicated by the things of this world, all of a sudden, you and I, we lose our balance. We lose our equilibrium. We lose our good judgment. And friends, he said that you know, there should be these personal qualifications. Then he said there should also be some positive qualification. And he said the positive qualifications for this person is that they should be hospitable, that they should be a lover of good things, sober, and then also just, holy, and under self-control. And he says, you know, that with faithful words, we should be able to exhort and teach those sound doctrine. And friends, we are living in a day as we come into these perilous times when men aren't holding the sound doctrine anymore. When we read the end of the book of Judges, as we heard in our last session, folks are just going around and they are doing whatever is right in their own sight. And the day of Noah before the flood came, it says that every man, his every continual thought was evil continuously. And friends, we are living in that day to day. And part of what we're looking for is men of good reputation and character. In a family level, in a personal level, and then also in a ministerial level. Now, why do we need good leaders is what I want to deal with today. Because I believe that there is a purpose for leadership. And the purpose for leadership is to reproduce more leaders. But you know that the law of Genesis is that everything reproduces after its kind. Everything reproduces after its kind. Fruit reproduces fruit. Vegetables reproduce vegetables. Fish reproduce fish. Land animals reproduce land animals. Human beings reproduce human beings and leaders ought to reproduce leaders. You see, the goal of leadership is to reproduce other leaders, not just for me to get on the top and be the leader, but is to reproduce other leaders. Paul tells Titus, I want you to set things in order and I want you to reproduce inside of yourself and reproduce other elders. You see, the sea followers emerge as leaders and 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 uh, as managers and then managers and the leaders is one of the leaders greatest joys. Man, I'll tell you what, to see your sons grow up and then to go out and to be established and then establish their own homes is one of the greatest joys a father could have. I had a discussion with both my sons. I don't want to keep you in my house all your life. I said, I want to give you two things, some roots and some wings. <laughs> want to give you roots, which means solid foundation. Want to give you some wings so that you can fly away. And friends, one of the greatest joys of any leader should be to see followers emerge into managers, proper stewards, as the text says. And then managers emerge into leaders. Reproduction is a part of life. And so all of us should want to reproduce who we are in the lives of those that are following us and whose lives we are given over to managers. Years ago, I taught a principle here that healthy things live, living things grow and growing things change. And friends, to be healthy is to live. To live is to grow and to grow is to change reproduction. Now, everything should reproduce after its kind and leaders should reproduce other leaders. You see, the goal of leadership, as I understand it, is that the goal of leadership is to make sure that you die empty. 
Jesus is my model for leadership. And Jesus was one that wanted to pour it all out. John 1930. After Jesus has ministered with his men for three years, he has now been arrested, gone through trials and been put on a cross. At the end of his life in 1930 of John, the word of the Lord says, and when Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. Friends, I believe that the goal in 1930 of every leader's life is to die empty. That is that I need to pour out everything that God poured in me into those that are around me in the earth. That I should be looking for someone to pour it out into. Someone that will walk with me and think with me and pray with me and stay with me so that at the end, the earth has a benefit of that grace And of that anointing that has been inside of me that I poured out into someone else. And at the end, we should be able to say it is finished. See, I should model leadership and leadership ought to finish well. And part of finishing well is to make sure I gave it all. Finishing strong is what Jesus did. And could you look with me now in the New Testament? Second Timothy chapter four and verse number uh, and verse number six, uh, where Paul is talking to another son. His name is Timothy. We looked at Titus earlier, but this will coincide with that. And Paul, when he comes to the end of his uh, at the end of his uh, message uh, to Timothy, he says, as I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure is at hand. Notice what Paul says in verse number seven. I have fought a good fight. Second Timothy chapter four, verse seven, it says, I've finished my race and I've kept the faith. See, the goal of good leadership is to pour it out and to finish strong. We should reproduce who we are and we should leave inside of people that which makes them wealthier than when they came to us. And finishing strong is the final chapter of a leader's life. Moses laid his hands on Joshua. Elijah had a mantle that came down on Elisha. Jesus breathed on the 12 and said, receive ye the Holy Ghost and wait until my spirit comes in and does with you in power from on high. And here we find this man named Paul. Pouring into Titus saying, reproduce other leaders for both the church and for the ministry. Friends, I believe that until you and I have poured out our lives and others into the next generation, we have not finished well. I remember when um, Veterans Day came last year uh, on uh, November the 11th. My daughter called me up. My daughter's 33 and she said, Dad, what are you doing on Veterans Day? And I said, well. Don't have any plans. I'm off that day. Gave the office off. And she said, I want to go see your dad's grave. My dad's buried in the military section at Greenlawn Cemetery in our in our city. He's a veteran of World War II. And I said, this is strange. Because my daughter doesn't even like going to funerals unless it's a real close friend. And she said, I've just been praying. And she said, I just think I need to go see your dad's grave. I said, well, you know, he was buried in 1959. She said, do you remember where it is? I said, I know exactly where it is. 
So I went out and I had a funeral the day before, just like um, uh, uh, clockwork. Uh, I went out to that funeral and they buried the person at Greenline. So I went over to the military section. I knew about where it was. They had put one grave on the outside. He was buried on the end. I found a tombstone and uh, called Yolanda up when I got back home. Said I found his grave. I said, I thought I knew where it was. And I said, I'll take you out there tomorrow. My wife said, what are y'all talking about? And I said, Yolanda wants to go out to see my dad's grave. And she said, hmm, I think I'll go with you. Now, that's a miracle. <laughs> now, Yolanda don't like going to funerals. My wife don't like going to cemeteries. Then my youngest son that lives with me, he comes in and he said, what y'all talking about? He said, we're going out to see my dad's grave. He said, I'm going with you. I'm taking my camera. Miracle number three. Three miracles in one day. So we're out there in the cemetery and we're looking at dad's grave. And all of a sudden somebody gets a wise idea. Let's clean off his tombstone. So we clean off this tombstone and everything. And now they start taking pictures. And later on, I find out they're posting it up on Facebook. Walking through a cemetery and I and I had this thought. I said, man, I said, can I believe that I'm out here with my family looking over dad's grave? Then when we get finished with my dad's grave, my daughter said, who else is buried out here? I said, man, look at all these people buried out there. <laughs> and she says, no, in our family. I said, your grandmother, my dad's mother. And I said, and my dad's sister is buried out here. She said, let's go find their grave. So we go up to the office that's open and I tell him we just visited my dad's grave. He's, he was in the veteran section and they said, did he have a flag on his grave? And I said, no, he didn't. They said, here's a free flag. Go put it on his grave. So go back out there, put the flag on his grave. By then they're able to go through all the card files and, and um, grandma and Aunt B, there, there's on the computer. Dad died so long ago. It's in the old card file system. <laughs> long time. And as we're tromping around out there through these grave plots, you know, because they give you sections and plots. And I'm out there, Trump. Now, you know, I'm starting to wonder how much is in this ground. Miles Monroe said in his book, Pursuit of Purpose, that a cemetery in a community is the richest place in that community. Because he said in a cemetery is buried. Dreams that never got fulfilled. Visions that were never pursued. Books that were never written. Songs that were never published. Instruments that were never created and invented. That's stuff that you think about. Wouldn't it be nice if in a cemetery are compliments that were never given? Apologies that were never extended. Forgive me. I'm sorry. And Miles Monroe says that the cemetery is the richest place in the earth. Dr. Monroe, when he preached at our church, he recently was killed in a plane accident at the end of last year, early uh, this year. Killed in an airline accident. And part of what they caught conversations on was him talking about dying empty. He said it's a goal of leadership. But that wasn't the first time he spoke that message. A decade ago when he came to our church, he started talking about scales. Make sure that before you leave this earth, that the earth has a benefit of everything that God has put inside of you. You see, leader, your ultimate goal is to be like Jesus. It is finished. 
Can you hear Paul saying as a leader, my life is being poured out like a drink offering. Leadership is not really done until you and I have poured it all out. We can't really rest in peace until we say I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I kept the faith. My life is being poured out like a drink offering. Leaders have to pour it out to everybody. I'm telling you this afternoon that our leadership task is not done until we disappoint the grave. Man, when they lower you into the grave, make sure that the grave gets nothing but an empty shell. That there's nothing left in it. Then you can say, oh, grave, where is your sting? You got nothing but a shell. Oh, grave, oh, death, where is your victory? You got nothing because I left it all in the earth. Lay your hands on somebody and impart what's inside of you to somebody. If God has a mantle on your life, if you use that analogy, let it come down on somebody. But don't enrich the graveyard. Part of the questions I ask is if Elisha let let a mantle come down on Elisha. When Elisha died, it says he died and he was buried. And I remember a band of thieves were coming back from a raid that they had done in the camp. And one of the guys died and they rolled him into Elisha's grave. And when he touched Elisha's bones, he resurrected and got up. Ah, when I was a young preacher, I used to preach about resurrection power in the grave. And I was talking about even if you go into the grave, there's an anointing in the grave to get you up. And I would use that text as an example. But as I've gotten a little older and I and I understand both not only mortality, but immortality. And I understand that that there is a thing called death out there. I started asking that text a question. Why was that anointing in the grave? What we find when we read Elisha's story's life is he had a little servant whose name was Gehazi that he was trying to disciple. But Gehazi would never submit And be obedient to the prophet. He always had hidden agendas. And because of that, when that prophet died, instead of being ascended on high like his father, he died and went to the grave and carried the anointed in. I'm telling you today that before you leave planet Earth, rob the grave. Depart from this earth empty. Don't enrich the cemetery. Everything that God has told you to write or to sing or to say or to do. Make sure that you accomplish that thing in the earth before you leave out of planet Earth. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children and to his children's children. Live your life on purpose. Only let the shell go into the grave. See, what should I deposit to this next generation? If Psalm 71, 18 says, before I leave, don't let me leave until I've been parted to this generation, your strength and everyone to come, your power. I believe that there are some things that we ought to impart. There's a book called Authentic Maturity by Tim Elmore. And authentic maturity uh, says uh, depends on timing of what young people are exposed to. Tim Elmore in his book, Authentic, and in his book, Artificial Maturity, says that there's an artificial maturity that can happen to a generation. He said, because authentic maturity happens, the name of the book is artificial maturity. But there's a chapel in it called authentic maturity. He says authentic maturity is based on the timing of what young people need, emerging adults, if you will. 
He says that they need to be exposed to certain things and leadership during their growth model. You see, kids mature at different ranks, but kids need to hear certain messages if we're going to have perpetual leadership at specific times. You see, timing is everything to the message we give our sons and our daughters now. For instance, between the time a child is one year old and eight year old, There are five messages that we need to impart to them as fathers. Five messages we need to impart to them between one and eight years old. First of all, we need to make sure our children know you are loved. You are loved. In other words, I'm here to seek your highest good all the time. And I affirm you in love. Second of all, we need to let them know that you are unique. You are unique. Psalm 139 says you are fearfully and wonderfully made and marvelous are your works. And this we know right well. You are unique. When God made you, he threw away the mold. He made you so good and so unique. He said, when he finished with you, I ain't going to never do that again. Look at your neighbor and tell him we only need one of you in the earth anyway. Yeah, go ahead and tell him, tell him. Yeah, we only need one of you. One of you is more than enough. So the first message they need to receive between one and eight is that you're loved. Second message is that you're unique. Third message they need to receive between one and eight is that you have gifts. I don't care what you do and who you are. God has invested gift inside of you. I met one that there's a young man in our church. He's autistic. But this man being autistic, this young man can pick up a saxophone and sit down on the piano and play anything that he hears. Gifted. Gifted. I was watching 700 Club with Pat Robinson one day. I think it was either Christmas Day or New Year's Day a few years ago. And he had a young man on there that was actually blind. And he could not speak, but he could hear. And he was playing this complex uh, Mozart piece. And when he got finished. Pat Robinson started interviewing his parent. And the parent says, we discovered that our child cannot see and our child cannot speak. This child can play anything that he hears. Mozart, which is difficult, complex. And here he was on there just playing on that. He went on to play several other classical tunes and played them with exactness. You are loved. You are unique. You have gifts are the three messages that they need to hear. But I said five. You are safe is the fifth, fourth message they need to hear. And and our children, our sons and daughters need to know that your home is a safe environment. Nothing's going to happen here on my watch. I'm going to correct you when you're wrong, but I'm also going to protect you when you're right. And even when you're wrong, I'm not going to let anybody seriously damage you. I am here to protect you that you are safe. See your love, you're unique, you have gifts, you are safe. And the fifth message is you are valuable. See those five messages Tim Elmore says in his book, Artificial Maturity. He says those messages need to be uh, not only imparted, but believed and received by our children between ages one and eight. Now he says, now if these messages have been established between ages one and eight, and if they are maintained, Maintain the maturity begins to happen because now the child is secure in who they are. Love, unique, gifted, safe and valuable. Love, unique, 
gifted, safe, and you are valuable. You are valuable. You have worth. You have worth. And when those messages are embraced and received, then the child is stabilized. But listen to me closely. Once those messages are received, your love, unique, gifted, safe, valuable, then at age 10 to age 18, that message must change. Because maturity just does not come with those positive affirmations. We have to deal with some of the tougher places in our journey in the wilderness. See, the rites of passage occur when emerging adults receive and embrace some other messages. The next message that they have to receive the next five is that life is difficult. I fought a good fight. A fight is difficult. Been in a few in my life. And life is difficult. Everything's not going to come easy. There are some things you're going to have to work for. Because of Genesis 3, by the sweat of our brow, God gives us a lot of things by his grace, but sometimes life is difficult. As Jesus were the difficult parts of the journey. As Paul were the difficult parts of the journey. As Peter were the parts of the difficult journey. If the Son of Man could not escape difficult parts of the journey, we must pass on the message. Everything just doesn't come in an instant way. Life is difficult, but that's not the only message. You are not in control is the next message they must hear. Would you look at the man next to you and just tell him you're not in control? Okay, some of you men are whispering now. I said, look at the man next to you. Tell you, you are not in control. So I told you this morning, if you're married, sleep on your wife's side of the bed when you go home. Several brothers told me they're going to do that tonight. I give you this next message. (laughs) Yeah. You are not in control. Life is difficult is a message that needs to be received. You're not in control, which means that you and I don't have ultimate authority. It was said in our last session and in the first one, God has all authority. Listen, the third message that needs to be embraced and received is though, listen, listen, though your love, unique, gifted, safe and valuable. Would you look at the man next to you and say, you're not that important. Go ahead and tell him. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, brother. Oh, man, for real. I was teaching this to some emerging adults in a, in a, in a church one time. This one girl said, what? I'm not? And I said, no, you're not that important. I know you're loved. You're gifted. You're safe. You're unique. Uh-huh, you're valuable, but you're not. That important. Listen, there's six billion people on this earth. And friends, sometimes we can exalt ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And friends, what this says is that life, we come to the next one. Life is not all about you. They need to embrace that message. See, to mature, you must understand that life is not all about you. Me. Would you look at the man next to you and say, life is not all about you. you. 
That's if you want to mature. Because mature people have to think about more than themselves. You never become a husband and a father and a good community citizen in the kingdom of God and in our natural community until we recognize life is not all about me, but I have to think about the common good. Do you know that even spiritual gifts are given for the common good? The profit with all the profit with all for the common good. And I think that it's important for us to understand that it's not all about me. It's about we. When you get married, you have to go from me to we, from mine to ours. You have to share everything, have to share space, have to share conversation, have to share food, have to share the remote control. Somebody in the back of the room yell, ouch. (laughs) And friends, life is difficult. You're not in control. It's not you're not that important. Life is not all about you. The fifth message. Oh, Lord. You are going to die. Unless Jesus comes in our lifetime and this mortality puts on immortality, you are going to die. I heard two men help me. Do you know when I was uh, 16 years old, I used to think I was immortal. Now, listen, somebody that's mortal, they they can die, they will die, and they're subject to death. Mortal. That's the definition of mortal. Can die, will die, subject to death. When you are immortal, you cannot die, you will not die, you're not subject to death. That's immortal. I used to watch this uh, movie. It was one of my favorites. Y'all pray for me. It's called The Highlander. (laughs) I hear there can only be one, the quickening. (laughs) And and there's all these immortals running around. And the only way that they could be released to mortality was somebody to take a sword and chop their head off. Pray for me. I like it. (laughs) And immortality can really be kind of strange if you enter into it without an expectation for it. But the fact of the matter is, after Adam listened to the wrong voice, we pass from life to death. God said the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. The first lie told in the Bible was that you shall not surely die, but you'll be like God. They didn't even know already that they were Ben Elohim, sons of God. That they were already walking as God's unique creation. They didn't know their identity. Friends, they fell from God awareness to self-awareness. Sin is just living independent from God, living independent from God. Because they didn't hear the tougher messages of life. Friends, I used to think I was immortal. I used to jump off of roofs, garages, go out in the, in the woods, man. And there would be a waterfall trickling over into a river, didn't even know how deep the water was. And one guy would jump off 
come on in, it's fine. Thought I was immortal. What could happen? How many of you know as you get older, you start considering? <laughs> How much water's in there? And, and uh, is there another way down? And, and I'll just go back the other way. I'll see y'all back at the camp. Because the older you get, sometimes the less risk you want to take. Because we understand our mortality. And friends, if you and I want to mature, we have to listen and we have to embrace some of the tougher messages of life. But we're not in those messages. Here's the good news. You're not in those messages by yourself. Though life is difficult, I can still do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's where the tension comes in. That's where the tension comes in. Man, though I know, though I know I'm not in control, I know he is. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He has ultimate authority. All power is given unto him in heaven and in earth. See, my tough questions are answered in him. Though I am not that important, I am a son of God. Behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon me, says second, first John three. That I should be called a son of God. Therefore, the world knows me not because it knew him not. Beloved, first John three, two says, now you are the sons of God and it doth not yet appear which you shall be. But we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. For as he is, so are we in the earth, John says. Though I know I'm going to die, I know death is swallowed up in victory. Listen, I'm in a win-win situation. If I go into the grave, he said, I'm going to get you up out of the grave because the dead in Christ shall rise first. If I'm alive and well at his coming, then in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, blink your eye. This mortal shall put on immortality. This corruption shall put on incorruption. This natural body will put on a spiritual body. And friends, I'm in a win-win. I can't lose. Friends, in these tougher messages, because I'm not in it alone, even though I know life is not all about me, the tension that I have between God is God is a God that speaks to the community, but he also is concerned about the individual in the community. He's a communal God, but he's also a personal savior. Though I'm not that important. He still thinks about me before I was. I was on his mind. God said, let us make mankind in our image and after our likeness. Before I was, I was on his mind. Before I was, I was on his mind. I'm not an accident. I'm not a product of chance and evolutionary process. I'm not a product of chance and matter and energy. Man, I am a created genius of God. God thought about me before I was and he spoke and said, let us make man after our image and after our likeness. And I refuse to live below that privilege. So when I'm pouring into these sons, I must give them the Affirming lessons of God. You are love. You are unique. You are gifted. You are safe. You are valuable. But I also need to pour into my sons the more difficult places that we walk in life. You see, when these lessons are poured into, 
one of our those that are coming to us, then they become the better for it. And so do we. You see, when these lessons are poured into those that we love and these relational matters are stretched and believe God is glorified in our life. If you go back to Titus now in the book of Titus and in Timothy, he talks about fighting a good fight, finish the course and keeping the face. Titus here, he says there for in verse number 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcisions whose mouths must be stopped and who subvert the whole household, teaching things that they ought not for for the sake of dishonest gain. And then he gives the testimony of the Christians, for they are always liars. Verse 12, always beasts. And they are also lazy gluttons. He says, this is a testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in their faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and the commandments of man and turn from the truth. See, perpetual leader wants to see people sound in their faith and sound in the truth. And friends, we live in an America today where soundness of truth is now fading away. Let me tell you something about the landscape that we're getting ready to face in our nation and that people are facing globally. There's a time when America loved the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But now America has passed their love and their romance with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're now living in a place in a time where where America used to love us and accept us. Now they have moved to tolerate us. And in certain pockets, they even ignore us and even attack us. When I look around in the media, I took an evening and tried to find one sitcom, one drama that showed a minister in positive light. And I found none. We had a brunt of jokes, the focus of sarcasm. And even in public media and in news, we are seen as unlearned. Not educated. Because we do not embrace the current way that our nation is going. It seems like we as the church in America have lost our home field advantage. God's solution is I need perpetual leaderships and righteous leaders to be produced. Not only do we have the American ideology of now moving from acceptance to tolerance, to ignorance to attacking. But now we have to deal with the Islamic imperialism that's happening around the world. Christianity grows because we convert people by reason and by faith and by encounters with the power of God miracles. Islam grows by Islamic imperialism. Their fourfold imperialistic approach is not very difficult. First of all, move into a territory and overwhelm and outpopulate the current populace. 
Move in. That's what ISIS is doing. That's what Al Qaeda is doing. That's what Hezbollah is doing. And that's what we think passive Muslims do. Our community in Columbus, Ohio has the second largest Somali community in the United States. Minnesota is one. It goes back and forth between Columbus and Minnesota. And the first thing that, that the Muslims do when they come into an area is overpopulate. Americans are having about 1.2 children a year. Most Muslim countries are having three to six children a year. Move in, overpopulate everything. Once you overpopulate everything, establish an economic base, businesses, and only do business with one another. That has happened in South Africa right now. Once you establish the business base, then you drive all the other businesses out of business. You know, in Islam, you don't pay interest when you borrow money. You just pay back the money. You know, in South Africa, the Muslims have now demanded from the banks, if you want us to bank our business money with your bank, We will not let you charge interest to us. Christians have to pay interest. Muslims don't in South Africa. With banks. Why? We've overpopulated. We own our own businesses. And now we establish an economic base. Once you establish the economic base, you get political influence. First, by lobbying. Secondly, by public policy. Thirdly, by election. Lobbying, influencing current politicians and governmental workers. Secondly, by not only that public policy change, and then thirdly, by election. That is starting to take place. Public, public policy in America now. And I have people that work at Columbus International Airport. When prayer time comes for a Muslim, he could go to the prayer chapel and pray. Multiple times during the day, Christians can't take off and pray. Muslims can take off and go to prayer at Ramadan. Christians can't take off Easter, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. On our watch, as men, overpopulate, establish the economic base, establish the political base, third or fourth level, of Islamic dominance is now dominate everything. When I was in Malaysia, either you convert or you die. Or third option, you can live as a slave in our in our country. Convert, die, live as a slave, pay taxes, pay interest and live as an underprivileged citizen. When I was in Malaysia, there are anti proselyting laws. So much public policy has now been affected that they're anti proselyting laws. Convert a Muslim the Christianity, you uh, do five years in jail. If you baptize them, two more years in jail. I preached there the first night with Dr. Cole. A bunch of men got saved. And I found out a number of those men were Muslim. And the pastors pulled me in and they rebuked me up one side and down the other for ha- giving a public altar call. And these men got saved. They said, some of those men are Muslims. We know those. They'll burn our churches down. Then they told me, you can go to jail for five years, and if we baptize them, two more years are added on. I looked at Dr. Cole, and I said, did you know this? He said, yeah. And I said, you didn't tell me? He said, no. And I said, why not? He said, I knew you were going to do what you were going to do. He said, they need to see that I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and to 
the Greek. I was in Malaysia. I was in Indonesia preaching. These are Muslim republics, friends. And we, they don't have the freedoms that we have here. So we not only have the attitude of America moving from acceptance to tolerance and now to a place in our country where it is ignorance. We just ignore you and now attacking. But now there's a Muslim influence. We also have finally the landscape that we're li- looking on. Why do we need perpetual holy leaders? Because now you have the assault that's coming in from the LGBTQ community. Lesbians, gays, bisexuals, transvestites and queers. The Q is on in certain states. Not everywhere. Sometimes they just say LGBT community. But some people took me some places in uh, New York where it's LGBTQ community, queers. And that's for if your sexual uh, preference might be anything. Might be a dog, a frog. A cat, a boy, a girl, a baby, everything. Let me tell you what their agenda is as I summed it up having read the gay manifesto. You know, there's a time when people that were part of that community were in the closet. We called that isolation. Then all of a sudden, isolation moved out and became conversation. You might want to write these words down. (laughs) Don't just listen. I don't want you to be shell-shocked when you leave out of here. First, it was isolation. Everything was in the closet. Then do y'all remember when people started having coming out parties? Coming out the closet. Friends, some things all stay in the closet. Then it started move from isolation to conversation. And then conversation, I mean, we start talking about this issue, that there's different kinds of people with different sexual preferences. As John said, everybody starts saying, I'm going to do what's right in my own sight. So now we have conversation. Let's have more talk and then let the talk be positive. And so that conversation became toleration. Write that word down. And do you remember when the word tolerance was a big word? Just be tolerant of us. So it was first isolation and conversation and toleration. And then it became accommodation. Write that word down. Y'all still with me? And accommodation means, uh, you know, just create a little bit of space for me, create a room for me, make some room for me and uh, let 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 what I'm seeing there uh, be a part of what you're doing. And then it became education. Okay, it's isolation, conversation, toleration, accommodation, then education. And now in our schools, there's an invasion, especially in public schools. Of educating, telling boys when they're little boys, well, you like little boys, don't you? Yeah, well, that means that you're a homosexual. Tell little girls, well, no, you like little girls, don't you? Yeah, that means that you're a lesbian. Listen, which of us, when we were coming up to a certain point before testosterone kicked in, all boys like boys because these were our comrades, not sexual partners, though. Come on. That's right. Come on. Because girls had cooties. You know it. <laughs> Then once testosterone kicks in, then all of a sudden you, (laughs) you don't mind those cooties, eh? Make room for us. Make room for us. And then you know what? Education begins to say that this is normal. It's okay. It's acceptable. And if people don't accept it, they are uneducated. Not you. You know what? After education, now we find the next phase is normalization, where this is just part of who we are. We're a broader society. 
The LBGT community, Q community says, this is just normal. Nature, listen to the language. God made me this way. Had a man come in my office. He said, but pastor, I'm struggling. I'm not a member of your church or any church. I'm just struggling. And then he said, I was born this way. And I said, that's why you need to be born again. But normalization comes now. If it stopped right there, then it would be maybe fine. But, you know, the next level celebration now. Because now corporations, if you're not going down to the pride parade, if you're not celebrating gay pride day, it used to be. And now my city was gay pride week. And now they dropped the gay. Now it's just pride month. Hear my prophetic voice before we finish. It will probably be a pride year. And it won't surprise me if we don't stand up and say something and establish our voice and our standard. It will be a, a decade of pride. And that's called celebration and will be to you if you work for a corporation and we are going to identify with what now is being called an oppressed people. And we're going to have a table at the pride parade. And if you don't participate, you will be marginalized or ostracized. And that's not happening from the government It's happening in the marketplace now. Celebration then moves into politicization and politicization Happens when politics now begins to exert public policy to that end. Indiana said that they had a vote and they're going to have policy that Christian businesses don't have to entertain same sex marriages because it offends their values. And now certain conventions said since Indiana passed that we're not going to bring our convention that way. It's been politicized. So we've moved from isolation to conversation to toleration, to uh, accommodation, to education, to normalization, to celebration, to politicization. This is where some of my fellow citizens in the LBGTQ community disagree with me. But now it's called legalization where everything gets legalized. John, I think you and I, we talked and we said, if a man can marry a man and a woman can marry a woman, what's going to happen in the state of Massachusetts? Because next thing you'll want a threesome to be a marriage. And you and I had that conversation. They did that in Holland. So then it's legalization. Then where do you stop the snowball? Where do you stop... When you begin to take God's standards and they begin to fall. Legalization then, once that happens and you have the government behind you, now you can begin to experience domination, which is the next one. And then institutionalization, where everything else, legalization, domination, institutionalization, where we're everywhere now. And if you don't let us into your schools, even Christian schools, do you know on Ohio State University campus, they passed a policy that if you are a club or an organization or an institution on the Ohio State University, that you cannot exist on our campus anymore unless you recognize the LBGTQ community. Thank God that one of my students in our church is a member of Navigators, and it's a national organization. They had pre-saw this prophetically, so they written into their bylaws the separation between church and state, and said, you, uh, they said, our officers have to be Christian. And Christians, and they had it in there, believe in marriage, 
between a nat. Listen to this language. A natural born man. And a natural born woman. But we need perpetual leaders that will stand. And it becomes important that we not waver even if our kids come out the closet. That's what happened to Eli. That's what happened to Samuel. They did not restrain their kids. And there was not perpetual leadership in the priesthood and in the prophethood. See, once there is legalization, domination and institutionalization, there can also be elimination and annihilation. Those are the last two. Eliminate your foes, your foes and those that oppose you and say that you're wrong. And annihilation is called genocide, the systematic removal of any voice from society. I'm going to go through my list again. Because when I read the gay manifesto, I said, Lord, what are you showing me here? And these are the words that he gave me. And then the order isolation turns into conversation, turns into toleration, turns into accommodation. It then moves to education, normalization, celebration and politicization. That then turns into legalization, domination and institutionalization with the whole goal of elimination of any opposing voice. And annihilation of any institution that does not come into agreement with it. But I give you this good news in the face of that. We are the kingdom of God. And I still have to believe, hear me well, that when Elisha looked out there because his servant Elisha, Gehazi woke him up and said, Master, the enemy has moved in at night. And he said, and what shall we do? What shall we do? And Elisha looked out there and he said, they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And perpetual leadership needs to know that greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. I'm not hopeless. I'm I'm just informing you of the landscape. We're facing American culture. We're facing Islamic imperialism. We're facing a community that is hostile, that wants to see us just go away. I'm here to tell you that as perpetual leaders, we will not fade into the night. We will not go away. We will not back down. We will not quit. We will not stop until righteousness has been established in the earth. We still pray thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in the earth as it is in heaven. I wanted to know what the LBGTQ community was talking about as I close this afternoon. So I went to one of their forums. They were one of their forums on public policy in the state of Ohio because they're trying to push. They think that now's the season if you're going to push for, you know, same sex marriages is the season. So I went to one of the forums. When I went in the forum, I sat down. And when I sat down, somebody looked over to me and said, they they moved over and said, aren't you a preacher? And I said, yeah, I'm a preacher. What are you doing in here? I said, I came in here to see what y'all talking about. Public forum. Came in here to see what you're talking about. So they were talking about how you know, we've been oppressed and how we've been brutalized and abused and how there's not right. And these are citizens. Right. But then when they said these are your God given rights, I said, what they say? God. <laughs> and I know there's a difference between American public policy and God's standard. Amen. Amen. So then they opened up the microphone. 
The lady said, before I take any questions, because she saw me moving. <laughs> she said, we will not tolerate any homophobic conversation. She says, because we don't need any kind of slanderous homophobic talking. She looked directly at me. And I got up and I said, I just like to ask one question, but I'd like to make a statement. I said, uh, here's my question. And I asked a question that I needed to ask. I said, and here's my statement. And I said, first of all, I want you to know my statement is I'm not homophobic. I said, a phobia is a fear. And then I made this statement. I said, I'm going to get ghetto on you right now. I ain't scared of none of y'all up in here. Now, let me talk English again. <laughs> I said, I'm scared of you. A phobia is a fear, and I'm not scared. And none of y'all have been here. I said, I just don't agree. The original mandate of God for mankind, male and female, is to be fruitful. Two men... <laughs> cannot produce anything. Two women can't produce anything. I said, I don't agree. And I said, so why is it that you denigrate and you talk down to everyone that disagrees with your viewpoint? I said, I'm not against the conversation. I said, I just don't agree with your conclusion. Because marriage is a holy institution established by God, says Malachi. When men were divorcing their wives, he says, you have come against his holy institution. And Titus tells, Paul tells Titus in the beginning of the qualifications that your marriage must be intact. And Paul's understanding of marriage is a man and a woman. And when someone attacks marriage, they attack the holy institution of God, men. Which means his holiness is under question now. And also his creative genius. Because in the beginning he made them male and female. We need perpetual leadership. This is not hate speech. It's to inform. This is not homophobic talk. I'm not afraid of anybody. It is to bring us an awareness of the landscape that we're out there. But friends, God still calls us as men to perpetual leadership, even in perilous times. I believe it's going to heat up a little while in America for us. Some of us, the line is going to be drawn on which side are you going to stand? I think that you and I start need to make that decision starting now. Because there's going to become increasing pressure to move off the standard of God. Some of that pressure will be from your own household, said Jesus in the last days. Your enemies will be those of your own house. I have people in our church that are struggling because their daughter or their son has come out now. And they said, what should I do? I said, you cannot change your biblical view. I said, that's one thing you cannot do. I have some folk in my family that are that are uh, relatives. One lesbian, one homosexual, and one a dopehead. Got a couple crackheads, too. They told me don't call them crackheads no more. Call them crack addicts. Okay? Is that all right? 
<laughs> Politically correct. Okay, thank you, brother. They just have addictions, but that does not give me an opportunity to relax. The state of Ohio is trying to pass in our state a marijuana law, legalized marijuana. I don't know what's going on up here in the Northeast. I asked one of my friends uh, who's in the pulpit. I know he used to smoke dope all the time. His testimony, I used to be one of the biggest dope dealers, just never went to jail. I said, what are you going to do if they legalize marijuana? He said, I'm thinking about going, get me a joint. (laughs) I said, bro, bro. He said, I'm just kidding. I said, I'm going to be watching you, brother. (laughs) Look at your neighbor and say, you know better. Go ahead and tell him. (laughs) I said, we cannot change our stand because things become legalized. Or even if it becomes part of our house. I want to pray for us as men in this session because I know that us drawing our line and fighting a good fight. Listen to me. Finishing the course and keeping the faith is going to be challenged in this next five years like never before. It's going to be challenged by American culture. It's going to be challenged by this Islamic imperialism. It's going to be challenged by a community that many of us have ignored and never even saw coming to the political stand that they are in today. We're going to be challenged, men. But if we're going to be challenged, let there be last man standing. And if you want to be one of the last men standing, stand up on your feet right now. Go ahead. Go ahead. I want you to confess to the man. If everybody else runs away, I'm going to still be standing. Tell him I'm going to fight a good fight. I'm going to finish my course. I'm going to keep the faith. Tell him nothing shall stop me or deter me. Tell him having done all to stand. I'm going to be standing. Get a hand up in the air. Say this after me. Father, in the name of Jesus, strengthen me with might by your spirit on the inner man. Help me to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Father, I will perpetuate leadership. Godly leadership, holy leadership, leadership that will stand for you. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Begin it in me, Lord. Begin it in me, Lord. And I will set in order the things that are lacking in my life. My home, my school, my job, my university, wherever I go, in Jesus' name. And everyone, say it. Go ahead and give a shout to God.